Good evening. Eric. First uh, John chapter five in your Bibles. I'm glad to see everyone tonight. That was uh, such a blessing to be able to come together and sing each week. Um, and keep learning some new songs and uh, and think about our Savior in that way. Um, I really enjoyed that last song that we sang. Um, so, as I mentioned last week, that we're what we're seeing in this last half of the last chapter in First John is is John wrapping up his letter to the church by repeating some truths about Christians about Christianity that he's already gone over in, in earlier chapters. Um, and it's like, it's like he's written this whole letter, and then before he ends it, he wants us to have in mind what's of most importance out of all the things that he said. Not that the other things aren't important, but he, as he's ending this letter, he's going to send it off with someone to take it to the church, and this is what he wants them to know. These things he, he wants... Uh, bouncing around in their heads after they have this letter read to them. If you think about it, the things we went over in the last couple of lessons and, and the last uh, two lessons that we'll have after this um, are of supreme importance to the Christian in the Christian life. These things are extremely important. And why are they so important? Because we're getting up every morning and going about our lives in this world of sin and death Despair, all those things, the things that the weight of things that Brandon was talking about earlier, we all know what that's like as we live in this world and our and we're waiting for our Lord to come back. Um, and things are getting worse all the time. We need godly counsel. Right? We need biblical encouragement as Christians. We need to know what things are and what they mean. And we need the truth in our lives to combat the lies of the world. And of Satan. We need to know how to know we, who we are in Christ. And we need stability. We need assurance. And isn't that what John has been offering in this letter? He's, he's been offering truth. He's been offering assurance. We've seen it. We've heard it. We've received these things from John. And remember, this is John's stated purpose for writing this letter. Right? He's, he's offering all these things and more and summed it up summed up the purpose for writing this letter. And, and when he said, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. I'm still struck by that statement. No, no other supposed God or religion offers that, right? Or even tries to offer that. In fact, Christians are thought of as arrogant for believing that they can know that they're saved and that their salvation is secure. Why do you think that is? Why do you think it is that Christians are viewed as arrogant for believing that they can know? What was that? They don't have the confidence that we have, right? Okay. Any other thoughts on that? Right. Yeah, doubt flies out the window when you believe Christ. And really, it's the difference between salvation resting on the efforts of man and salvation resting 
on the efforts of the Savior, Jesus Christ. Right? Why would it be true, though, that even some professing, professing Christians think it's arrogant? Why would that be true? Yeah, it should be. I think it's true because they haven't read 1 John. Right. Yes. Right. Yeah. That that is very hard for our world to swallow. That there are absolutes. Uh, it's a it's a big hindrance. Right. Right. And isn't that what Jesus, Jesus promised that would happen? To follow him was going to bring division, even among family, to follow him. So, professing Christians who find it arrogant for Christians to believe that they can know that they're saved and, they're evalu- and their salvation is secure, uh, yeah, I think it's because I said it kind of flippantly, they haven't read 1 John, but, which is kind of true, though. I mean, if you read 1 John, you can't come away from it thinking anything else other than he really wants me to know that I can know, right? And I think another problem is that they have too, too high a view of man, too high a view of our abilities, right? And too low a view of God. So John wrote these things. He says, so that you may know you have eternal life. It's not arrogance. It's faith. It's belief. It's, it's trust, all placed somewhere outside of ourselves. It's placed in the Savior himself, which makes it not arrogant. It's not, that's why the world has a hard time with that, is because we're used to looking at things on, on what we can achieve and how we can achieve, and we can't imagine any person in our life that could even provide assurance for us that can be trusted fully. We can't imagine that. But we're not talking about just a person here. We're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. So, we place our trust in the Savior Himself, and that's the key to understanding our assurance. So, for those who believe the testimony that God has given concerning His Son, as we looked at a few weeks ago, there is assurance because God has promised it. What did John say that testimony from God is? That God has given us eternal life, and that life is in His Son. So, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. And so the first thing that we'll see in tonight's text is a repeat of what John wrote about in chapter 3. He wrote about those who keep on sinning. And those who have life, those who are born of God, do not keep on sinning. So let's read our text for tonight, and then we'll open in a word of prayer. 1 John chapter 5, we're going to do verses 18 and 19 tonight. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but He who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, as we come before you tonight, we are, we are blessed, we are privileged to be able to do so, to be able to open your word and hear what you have said. Lord, we acknowledge that you are omniscient, you are all-powerful, all-knowledgeable, all-present all everywhere, all the time. You are completely trustworthy, you are, you are unchanging your word is unchanging, and we can trust it absolutely. And I pray, Lord, you give us as your children, as those who have trusted Christ, assurance tonight of our salvation. And not any focus on ourselves, Lord, but that we would focus completely on the Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. So we've, we've already gone over this um, John has already dealt with extensively uh, in chapter 3, but, but here he feels the need to mention it again, right? In chapter 3, among other things, John said these things. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. That was from verse 4 of chapter 3. He said, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. All that in, in chapter 3. And we've reviewed this before, but clearly John thinks it's worth mentioning more than once and in different ways. The idea of the practice of sinning and John's use of the word lawlessness in verse 4 of chapter 3 are important because John is talking about those who are unbelievers. He said, he has said, beloved, referring to Christians, we are children of God now. He's making a separation there. But these who make a practice of sinning are practicing lawlessness. And in chapter 3, if you remember, practice, the word practice is a key word. We should recognize here that John is absolutely identifying the unregenerate person by using that word. Everyone who has not been born again is practicing sin or lawlessness. And the word practice indicates an ongoing, habitual pattern of life. A life, no matter how cleaned up on the outside, that is only producing evil from within. And that, that's all they can do. And our text for tonight, John uses the words, keeps on sinning. And this is the same thing. He's, he's making the same point as when he talked about those who practice sinning in chapter 3. So when he says, everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, it's the same thing as saying true Christians do not make a practice of sinning in an ongoing and habitual, unrepentant manner of life. Indeed, they can't. Why? Back in chapter 3, verse 9, For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Biblically speaking, a Christian who stumbles in sin here and there it's not the same thing as practicing sinning, right? This is not about perfection. How do we know that John's not saying Christians will never sin? Well, because in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You see, we don't, we don't read that to get permission to sin. Some, some people might read it that way. We don't read it to get permission to sin, but to see that it's a reality sometimes, and God has provided an advocate 
in His Son, Jesus Christ. The one practicing sin, or unbelievers, do not have that advocate. They do not. So when John's talking about unbelievers, he says they are those who do keep on sinning. When he's talking about Christians, he says they are those who do not keep on sinning. So John starts verse 18 by saying, we know. Okay? And that's a reference to the fact that he's already taught them about this. It's, it's a settled doctrine. He's, he's taught them plainly about this subject. He's not going to reteach it. Okay? He, he's just drawing their attention back to it. Hey, remember this thing I, I told you about? Well, well, I have something else I want to say about it. Right? He's drawing their attention back to it so he can make his next point. His point in bringing this topic up again is to make sure that people understand another important truth. We have seen the truth that we do not keep on sinning because we've been born of God and God's seed abides in us. Now he wants us to know another truth, another promise really, regarding what is going on behind the scenes, so to speak. So look at verse 18 again with me. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Everyone who's been born of God is a reference to every Christian. And when he says everyone who's been born of God, that's not talking about anybody else except Christians. They do not keep on sinning. But which Christian is John talking about when he says, but he who was born of God protects him? Who's Jesus? Absolutely. Okay? He's talking about Jesus. Those who've been born of God, he mentions that first off in verse 18, those who've been born of God are those who have been born again. Christians. Jesus has not been born again, okay? but he was born of God, the Holy Spirit, into his human flesh. He's the only begotten of God. I think we've got that clear, the the distinction there. But what we need to notice is what he says about Jesus and what Jesus does for Christians. He protects the Christian. Why Why does the Christian not continue making a practice of sinning? Because Jesus protects him. How? By setting them free from sin. Right? You, you were once in bondage to sin. You and I as Christians were once in bondage to sin. Sin was our master. But now you are a slave of God unto righteousness. You've traded one master for another. Your new master has changed you and is changing you until you reach the end, which is to spend eternity with the master. And this is a biblical truth. In Romans 6, 20 through 22, says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Have you ever thought about that, that Jesus protects you from from sinning? Protects you from sinning like you once did before you were saved? Can you, can you see that to be true in your own life? From the before you were saved to now after being saved and then progressively going through your life, can you see that Jesus has protected you from reverting back to your old life? Yeah. 
You should be able to see it. As Christians, we should be able to see that, see an ongoing growth into Christ-likeness. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives. If you're a Christian, this growth will be present. It's the fruit leading to what he, he said there of sanctification and its end, eternal life. He who was born of God protects you. So much protection, in fact, that not only does he keep you from sinning like the lost and spiritually dead person you, you, you once were, but he also does something else that we really need to understand. Because God protects the Christian, the evil one does not touch him. Of course, the evil one is a reference to Satan, right? You might be thinking, wait, really? He doesn't touch God's people? Well, what about Job? And what about Peter? What about Paul? What about Jesus himself? Okay, all of these had encounters with Satan that, that caused their either physical pain or uh, emotional pain or spiritual harassment. So let's revisit some of those things and, and see what we can learn from that here. So a few passages that I want us to go look at. First of all, back in your Old Testament to Job chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. Job chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. Now, I'm going to chapter 2. If you remember verse 1, Job had to deal with Satan after Satan spoke with God, and God offers Job up, says, have you considered my servant Job? Um, that leads to Satan being allowed to go after Job. Job loses all of his possessions, um, all of his wealth, loses all ten of his children, all in rapid succession, he gets these messengers that keep coming, telling him all these things that happen, right? Because God allowed Satan to do this. And so, now we'll bump over to chapter 2, because that wasn't the end of it, right? Satan, they have the, he has this meeting with God again, and God does the same thing, offers up Job again. Have you considered my servant Job? Let's go to Job chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. And this is after they have their meeting where God asks him, have you considered my servant Job? So verse 4 says, Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he's in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. That sure sounds like Satan was able to touch him. Doesn't it? Let's go look over in Luke. Ah, hey, you're skipping ahead. <laughs> Luke chapter 22. Verses 31 through 34. 
And this is a situation where Jesus is predicting Peter's denial. He's telling Jesus, or Jesus is telling Peter he's going to deny him. But there's something that went before that denial. And it has to do with, with Satan. So let's look at verse 31 of chapter 22 in Luke. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have returned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And we know the outcome of that, right? Peter did exactly what Jesus said he was going to do. That doesn't sound like, sure sounds like Satan was able to touch Peter, right? He sifted him. That was that, was that process there. Let's look over in 2 Corinthians. And these are all familiar passages, but I want to bring them to mind again for this discussion. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And this is familiar to you. Uh, it's Paul's, uh, this instance where Paul has this thorn in his flesh. Um, so let's look at verses 7 through 9 in 2 Corinthians 12. So, to keep me from becoming conceited, this is Paul talking, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And that sure sounds like Satan was able to touch Paul, right? Let's look at our last example over in Luke, again, chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. And this is the part of Scripture dealing with Jesus and his temptation in the wilderness as Satan comes and tempts him. Let's look at that, that passage there, verses 1 through 13 in Luke chapter 4. Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on 
their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. That sure sounds like Satan was able to touch Jesus. So how can John go around saying, He who was born of God, talking about Jesus, protects Christians, and the evil one, Satan, does not touch them? How can John say that? It seems from the Bible that we see plenty of instances where Satan is able to touch people. He tried. He succeeded. Well, not with Jesus, but he still succeeded in harassing Jesus, in tempting Jesus. And John is not talking about Satan never having any involvement in trying to deceive or manipulate or harass Christians. Hey, this clearly must mean something other than what we think of when we think of the word touch. All right, so what is it? Well, let's take a look at the Greek word that John used here um, that we've translated as touch. And I think every major Bible translation uses the word touch here, with the exception of the NIV, which says harm. Um, the word that John used is hapto, okay, which has a stronger meaning than our word. It means to fasten to, to adhere to. You think about that difference, right? The difference between touch and fasten to. You know, when I was, when I was chasing people down in a foot pursuit as a deputy sheriff, and I caught up to them, which I always did, by the way, right? I didn't just want to touch them. Okay? I, I wasn't playing tag with them. I wouldn't gain anything by merely touching them and letting them go. My goal was custody, right? I, it was not about touching them. It was about laying hold of them. My plan was to grab hold and not let go, to put them in custody. I had the authority and the ability to do so. And this is what John is talking about when he says, hapto, uses that word. The evil one does not lay hold of you. He cannot. He does not capture you. He cannot. He does not... Fasten himself to you or you to him. He cannot do that. You see the difference? So we can see these biblical examples of what Satan is doing, but what he is not doing is fastening himself to them. He is not laying hold of them. You, Christian, have been rescued from the clutches of the evil one. Sure, as God permits, he can harass and tempt and try to deceive but he does not have you. He cannot have you ever again. I say again because the evil one once had you, did he not? Yeah. But what did God do? He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. As John said before, the unbeliever, the one who keeps on sinning, is from the devil. They need their eyes opened, their sins forgiven. They still need to be released from the snare of the devil. The scriptures describe it this way, Acts 26, 18. Uh, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light 
and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And 2 Timothy 2.25 and 26, Paul tells Timothy um, how a pastor should handle his opponents or unbelievers and, and says he should be correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. You see, Satan already has them. He already had you at one point. He has the world in his grip. They are enslaved to him. And that's the point of this next verse, to show the stark difference. The the opposite results are found in the world. They're found in the lives of the unbelieving world. They do not enjoy the benefits of the sanctifying work of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit, like Christians do. They do not enjoy the protection of from eternal damnation in hell like Christians do. They think they're free, but they're just in bondage to their master, the evil one. What is their lot in life? What is their status in this world? John tells us in verse 19 what the situation is for the rest of the world, and he begins by repeating again that Christians are from God. Okay, 1 John five nineteen, We know that we are from God. Christians. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. See the difference there? The whole world is under the power of the evil one. He has fastened his grip on them, and unless God graciously removes that hold and takes possession of a person, they are doomed to remain under the control of the evil one. Well, what is John's point? It's certainly not to discourage Christians. He hasn't written this so that we would be discouraged. His point is to show his readers that though they may stumble into sin occasionally, they must remember as an anchor to the soul that Christ protects them, that they have been rescued, they have been redeemed, they've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, and the evil one does not, cannot, will not ever touch them. So if you take this passage to mean that Satan never has anything, never has anything he can ever use in your life to attack you or harass you, you'll eventually become confused and frustrated and discouraged because the reality is Satan is active. But where Satan can indwell and possess and control, and be the master of unbelievers, he has no such power over you as a Christian. And you are a child of the living God. And so, certainly this is not to discourage, it is to encourage Christians that God will never lose any of his children. He'll never cast out any who have trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior. And that's what we'll talk about next time as we finish up this letter on on such a very positive note, a reassuring note about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, He who is true and the true God, what we'll look at next week. Okay, let's close in prayer. 
Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for these encouraging words. Father, I can see how some reading this might be discouraged. Lord, but that can only be because they don't know Christ as their Savior. Lord, you have promised that Satan cannot touch us. He cannot ever bring us back to the kingdom of darkness. He is not more powerful than Jesus Christ. I pray you give us understanding as Christians, Lord, when the difficulties of life come, when there is deception coming at us, lies filling our minds from different areas, Lord, where there's physical ailments and things we don't quite understand as we suffer in this world as Christians, that we would ultimately remember, Lord, that there is nothing that Satan or anyone else can ever do to separate us from your love. May we be encouraged every day by that truth. As, as Brandon shared earlier at the beginning, Lord, that your mercies are new every morning. I pray, Father, that each morning we would remember this truth afresh. Thank you for your graciousness, your mercy, for our salvation that's found in Jesus Christ alone. May we always trust in that, Lord, and be joyful Christians. In his name, amen.